Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favorite books. Um, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurangai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I would like to acknowledge the Wajuk Munga people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Because I'm still in Perth, where I live now, forever. (laughs) But it's fine. You're going home in like a week, right? Now? Yeah, touch wood. I mean, they still haven't opened the bubble. I'm just hoping that they do. On Tuesday, we'll find out. They will open the bubble. We've all been locking down so well. I know. And like Perth just lifted their lockdown today. So that's good. We haven't had any more cases. I'll just have to go get a test next Friday if I can get home. Because now we have to have a test before you can travel. So That's not so bad. So we'll see. Fingers crossed I get to go home next Sunday. (laughs) Fingers crossed, you poor thing. Oh, well. Yeah, so this week, very exciting, we're looking at Thor Ragnarok through the themes of family and memory. This was a fun one. I really enjoy this movie, and I love watching it, so it was really joyful. And it wasn't sad. There were no crying bits, which was, like, a nice change from our last one shot. Uh, yeah. It's such a great, like, it's a modern masterpiece, this film, I think. It's just it so fun. And I know we've spoken before about how good Antipodean humor is. Mm-hmm. But this is just, like, <laughs> so funny. Every bit of it is so funny. It always fascinates me that Antipodean humour translates in America, because to me, it's something that shouldn't work. But then you've got Flight of the Concords, which is huge in the US, and mm. you've got What We Do in the Shadows that people really love. And this was, like, really popular. And I just sit there going, why does this make sense to you? It feels like a Kiwi film. Yeah, and I mean, there are great little Antipodean call-outs in there as well, you know, like, the tell her she's dreaming bit, which is obviously a castle reference. The piss-off ghost was one of my favourite bits, because that was the ad that you showed me, which we will link, because it's very funny. Oh, I can't get over it. Like, New Zealand has really interesting and specific ads, but the drink driving ads are just something else. Which I love. I feel like I, like I don't see very many ads, because everything streams, so I don't see any ads anymore, which is really sad, but um, I'm sure that if I did, they'd be good. I mean, that is an old ad, and I feel like it's one of those things that are just in the, it's in the cultural zeitgeist of New Zealand so it was one of the things Mm. that I kind of was shown when I first moved to New Zealand was this drink driving ad about the ghost Mm -hmm. chips and another Mm. one was the pineapple lumps ad there's one where God is handing out things to different countries and New Zealand gets pineapple lumps and it's like well done New Zealand and that's another one that I was shown so I will link that as well (laughs) you can see what I'm dealing with um we should actually talk about the movie a bit. Um, yeah. Shall we start with a theme? So you had family. So did you I want did. to tell us a little story? I will. I'll tell a little kind of an adjacent story, a family adjacent story. So like I, the family I grew up in when I was in high school, you would look at us and think that we were like a very typical family, like parents married, five kids. We all look like each other. We all have themed names. I'm not even kidding. It's mm-hmm. a whole thing. <laughs> but when I was actually growing up, It was not at all what you would call a typical family. So my parents fostered kids from before I was born to the time I was about six years old, about the time my mom's mom got sick. So when I was born, I actually had three older brothers. My parents had just begun the process of trying to adopt them when their biological mom applied for and was granted 
guardianship of her kids. So my mom, who had been planning to raise these three kids who were four, five, and six, and had an 18-month-old little girl, which was me, um, suddenly found herself with one child and no way of knowing how the boys that she had had for like three years were doing and if they would ever come back and what had become of them. It broke her heart, absolutely. I mean, my mom grew up in a house where other kids were fostered. She had foster sisters and foster brothers. My uncle, who's her younger brother, is adopted. One of her younger foster brothers became her nephew when my Mm. auntie, who's much older, was like, oh, look, I think I've fallen in love with Danny. We want him to be part of our family. So, like, this is really common for us. Like, we just, like, what kids do not always get to be raised by their parents, but, like, no big deal. But for my mom, it was, like, a turning point where she... She kind of didn't let herself fall in love with little ones again. And I mean, all of this is just to say that it was hard for my mom. And I felt like for a lot of my younger years, I grew up with this sort of idea that I should have had these brothers that I didn't get to have. The most important thing I got was that families don't look like how you expect them to look no matter what they actually are. And because Mm. I grew up with this as such a normal part of my life, like fostering and adoption, and the fact that I also grew up in a small community with a lot of parents who struggled with like addiction and poverty, a lot of my peers weren't raised by their parents. There were a lot of grandparents and aunts and uncles doing double time as like Mm. moms and dads. That was just normal for me. So it didn't occur to me that like capital A adoption was like a thing. Mm. I didn't really get it. And so when we got these neighbors when I was a kid and their kids were like capital A adopted, it didn't occur to me that it was meant to be like a secret that they were in charge of telling because everybody I knew who was adopted, it was like just common Mm. knowledge. Yeah. Um, And I kept thinking about this when I was watching Thor because Loki's adoption and the fact that he's not really Loki Odin's son, you know, like that is like a huge part of his identity and the the relationship with his family is really crucially Mm. um, a part of how he relates to the world around him. Like he's not really in one world or in the other. And so I just thought like you wouldn't see it looking at me like I'm the most boring suburban mother ever really. But I actually grew up in this kind of like mutable family structure that isn't as straightforward as it looked even from the outside. Even as I was growing up, it didn't, it wasn't as it looked. Not in a bad way. It was just Mm. very different, a lot more permeable than you might imagine. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, I vividly remember when I first realized that actually this idea of your classic nuclear family didn't exist. I think Mm. I spend so much time thinking that there's a certain way that a family should look. There's a certain way that a family should behave. And then it's that idea that, you know, all happy families are unhappy in their own way. It's like there is no functional family. All families are dysfunctional. All families are what they are. That doesn't mean they're any less valuable because this ideal of what a family is doesn't exist. It's what you make. The way I'm approaching my reading of the text is that family is a construct and there are some tenets that is what make it a family. So it's mutable Mm -hmm. um, and it's a collection of people with shared history and experiences. Uh, There's an element of like a domestic relationship. So they're in the same habitation and Mm -hmm. it's either like a blood relationship or a covenant relationship. So like the domestic blood or covenant relationships. And then I wanted to talk about how they fail or succeed. And so I wanted to talk about how like secrets, expectations, unmet needs are part of how families can fail. And then I want to talk about how that shared history and experience, as well as like the relationship and connection and the idea of a homecoming or how families Mm. succeed. So that was where I came from. Like that's how I defined what I wanted to focus on. But then basically I just like laughed my way through the movie three times and did not actually (laughs) take good notes. So we'll see how we go. Did you did you want to talk about a memory or a theme? Do you have a theme story for us about memory? Yeah, so I was thinking about memory in the way of trauma, actually, because mm. as you know, I um, worked through PTSD last year and a big part of that was going to 
get some EMDR therapy. It sort of works that you reprocess your memory. So you sit with the, the memory that's causing you trauma and you sort of work through it until you can actually basically process it because the way trauma works is that you constantly live in the memory that sounds like so much work jen it is an incredibly difficult thing because so i was going to what i would call a normal therapist and i didn't really process the fact that i had ptsd i was sort of just be like yeah yeah garden variety depression you know like i can't Mm. function as a human being i don't know what's going on and this therapist said to me i think you need to see someone who specializes in trauma i think you would benefit from emdr now i had never heard of it before so i had pulled up the little psychiatrist guide in new zealand and i went through and found the people who specialized in it and Mm. the therapist had said to me they usually have massive waiting lists and you might not be able to be seen because it's like such a specialized thing but i managed to find someone who had a like I liked the look of her and she had availability the next month so it's sort of all the stars aligned and I went to see her and we just jowled which is amazing Mm. and so I started this EMDR with her and yeah it's very confronting because you basically have to go into this memory that you relive in order to make your brain process it because it hasn't actually processed and moved past it that was actually almost easy in a way like once I got through I only had this one event that had triggered my trauma so I could work through that but then when we'd finished with that memory she was sort of saying now let's talk about why you had that reaction to this traumatic event Mm. what is actually the underlying thing that drove that trauma and so to get to that bit you sort of have to go through and find other memories like what has instilled that reaction in you so you go back and the idea is that you will find the earliest memory that you have the one where the, that occurred for the first time and once you process that that will free you from this other behavioral issues i'm not explaining it very well i'm not a psychiatrist so it's like a nesting doll of awfulness yeah but once you get to yeah. the little one then you know you want to unknot that one and that would make everything else make okay. sense so i kind of went back and i would pick these memories they're not like massive trigger point events i guess but we would sort of work through the way that i had reacted to things and we'd go back and back and all along I had a memory because she would always say to me what memory do you want to work on is there anything and we'd make a list and then she'd go okay I think this one is the one that sounds like it's more important than the others so let's work with that and I had a memory from when I was about four years old that I just sat on Mm. because to me it didn't feel like a memory that I should be this affected by and so therefore I didn't want to bring it up and I wasn't ready to work on it. Like, it's not a memory that you've buried. It has to be you. You need to be ready to process it. You need to be ready to talk about it. And so I was going to therapy every two weeks, working through these other memories, until eventually I said to her, I have this memory from when I was four. And even as I was telling her about it, I started crying, and I was Mm. working through it. And she's like, well, this is the one. But I needed to come to her with it. I needed to be ready. Because if we went too early, then I wouldn't have been able to process it or work through it in the way that I needed to. And so we worked on this memory. And like I've said before on this podcast, like EMDR changed my life. It was one of the most incredible experiences that I've ever had. What it's done for my anxiety and the way that I live my life has just been incredible. Like I feel like a new person. But it is incredibly difficult work and all of it is about dealing with your memories and dealing with mm-hmm. your reactions and really understanding yourself and sitting with yourself and also just being kind to yourself. And I thought about that in this because obviously Valkyrie has this incredibly traumatic experience with Hela and Loki very aggressively forces her to relive that. And it's sort of that moment that compels her to help Thor and this idea that your memories can be used as a way of moving you forward. So yeah, that's sort of how I came at it. I love that reading and also I am mad at him every time he does that. I know, it's because so Because it's invasive. such a violation. I get it. And also I know that Asgardians have like the healing speed run power or whatever 
whatever, but it's still it's not. It's cool. a horrible thing. There's no consent. All of it is terrible. I find that parallel between him being able to re-traumatize her in mm-hmm. order to bring back that part of her Asgardian heritage stands in really stark contrast to Hela, who really wants that old Asgard back mm-hmm. and yet doesn't find it the same way. So there's an interesting parallel there. And I also think it's interesting that Loki uses that memory. He wants to weaponize her trauma against her. It's for him, that's a way to get out of his tricky situation. So he uses it as a weapon and that is just horrific. But we will get into that. Um, do you want to quickly give us a summary of the film before we get stuck in? Uh, imprisoned on the planet Sakaar, Thor finds himself in a gladiatorial contest that pits him against the Incredible Hulk, his former ally and fellow Avenger. Thor must race against time to return to Asgard and stop Ragnarok, the destruction of his world at the hands of the powerful and ruthless goddess of death, Hela. I thought I'd just give a little bit of Marvel Cinematic Universe timeline context because these, even though it doesn't really matter, these films don't exist in a vacuum. Thank you for telling me though, because I have no idea. Like, I don't, <laughs> this might be the last Marvel movie I've seen. Oh no, I saw the one with Brie Larson because I love her but I don't really care where that fits in because it's bef- it's in the before times, isn't it? Yeah, that was like 95. So on the continuum of the timeline, that's one of the first things. But for Ragnarok, it takes place four years after the last Thor film, which is Thor the Dark World. And that's where Loki faked his own death. And so Thor thinks mm. he's dead. And it takes place two years after the Avengers Age of Ultron film, which Thor isn't actually in, but it's the one where the Battle of Sokovia happens and Hulk goes into space. And then the end credit scene of Ragnarok leads directly into the start of the Avengers Infinity War. So that's where it sits. There are so many Avengers movies now. Some might say too many. (laughs) Well, look, I can't keep track of them all. I just like the Thor movies. Yeah, the Thor fam are actually my favourite as well out of all the MCU characters. I love the Thor arcs the most. So originally I was quite into all of this MCU stuff. I've sort of dropped off as they progress because I cannot invest this much time into this. Like, I don't care that much. But I was really into it back when it first came out. And I remember the horror people had waiting for that Thor film to come out so they mm-hmm. cast Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston who weren't household names and people were very worried the stills came out before the film's release and everyone's like oh my gosh Asgard looks terrible it all looks plasticky <laughs> and weird Kenneth Branagh directed you know who's known like Shakespearean and everyone was like what is this film gonna be he's so but funny I think, though <laughs> like... oh it's so good like it Thor needs to be Shakespearean like it has to be mm. this kind of like I don't know this dramatic nonsense kind of faux English but not situation yes. like it just Midsummer works Night's Asgard yes yeah and it's funny like Thor is the funniest of all the Avengers and I think he's the like the Thor universe the Thor characters are the only ones that really are allowed to have any fun so yeah I find it weird that with the Loki TV show people level this criticism against it that oh Loki's too funny but he's always been funny him and Thor have always been funny I agree I think the the one where he wasn't that funny was when he was like the Joss Whedon version of Loki I did not love like I think Joss Mm. took him too hard like he was trying real hard to make him an actual villain whereas Loki's a cat okay he's a cat he's really not happy whenever he loses his dignity which happens all the time because he's a cat but he keeps (laughs) getting like shoved around by the golden retriever that's his brother and like this like this is the entire relationship yeah. And it's like the idea that Loki is a villain, but he's never supposed to be like a successful villain. He's done terrible things and has some of his behavior led to the death of people. 
yes, acknowledge. We're not going to gloss over that fact. Yeah. But in a way, I find him so compelling in the same way that I find Magneto incredibly compelling. Like, Magneto as mm. a villain has done terrible things, but sometimes mm. he's good. And Loki's like that too. Yeah. Sometimes he's good. You just don't know which way he's going to go. He's um very malleable, very changeable. Which is fun and interesting. And like, I don't like one-dimensional villains. You have to have a villain who someone knows them really well. Thor is not a real himbo. He's a fake himbo. And he knows Loki so well that he can anticipate him now. Mm-hmm. And when he has to, actually has to get stuff done, he just factors it in. Yeah. Loki never really gives him that much of the benefit of the doubt. Like, he never reciprocates that with Thor. He doesn't think Thor's going to actually anticipate this and do this. He's just like, haha, I'm the clever, tricky one. And I'll, yeah. what, what do you mean I can't? like achieve this betrayal i think we definitely see that because that scene towards the end when they're going to steal the spaceship right and mm-hmm. thor anticipates that loki's gonna do the switch out and like be a like thor always assumes that he is just projecting his body yes. and loki <laughs> because thor has grown as a character through everything that he's been through mm-hmm. even in the first film like he went through incredible growth there and he's grown with every progressive moment and loki hasn't and thor is correct that he says that you know you just are the same as you were and i think that's a real important moment moment for Loki because he'd never considered it like he'd never yeah. considered that oh yeah I can change and so when he does actually when he does get freed by Korg best character and yeah. Korg is like we're gonna get on a ship and he's like you are in desperate need of leadership because he has to maintain his dignity like you have not rescued me I'm helping you but exactly. he still does the right thing I meant to fall into this bathtub <clears throat> <laughs> Also, Korg is just gorgeous, and I can't wait to talk about that character, too. Pile of rocks waving at you. Perishable rocks. <laughs> so many good lines. I'm a thing. I'm a being. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Meek's dead. I stepped on him, but I've just been feeling bad and carrying him around. Oh, my gosh. It's a little rock, paper, scissors joke. Don't need to be intimidated oh. by me unless you're scissors. <laughs> I can't. I can't deal with it. It's so funny. And that's the great thing about this, because I feel like, you know, you mentioned the Whedon Avengers before, and there's this, and this is the massive problem with DC as well. It's like, they take their superheroes way too seriously. And like in this film, it's making fun of itself, as well as the whole superhero genre at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's doing it in a loving way, because we're here because we love superheroes, but at the same time, it's like, this is dumb. And I think one of the best ways of doing this, and it's actually a, a place where I saw memory as well, because it's using Thor's memory sort of as a plot device. And it's mm-hmm. when he keeps saying, you know, the sun's getting real low, the sun's going down. He's constantly saying this to Bruce or to the Hulk because he's trying to get the Hulk to turn into Bruce so that he can have, you know, help. And then he's trying to use it later to keep Bruce calm. And it's because he fundamentally misunderstands. Like, that's something that Natasha says to Bruce, and that's why it works, because they have that weird relationship. Yeah. And, like, Thor has just sort of tangentially heard this thing and has decided that this is the trigger. So he keeps repeating it and repeating it. And with every repetition, it becomes more farcical. And I just love that. And he's not even getting it right. And it's just so great. Our boy's a little confused, but he's got the spirit. Mm. He's the equivalent of the you tried star. Absolutely. And I love that he fanboys over Valkyrie. Like, when he finds out she's a Valkyrie, he's like, I want to be a Valkyrie. She's just like, I'm just going to drink a six pack and listen to this nonsense from really far away. She's pretty um, not okay, Valkyrie. She's had a really rough time. Yeah, not um, healthy processing happening. I want her to be better. I want her to be better for her, though. Like, I don't really care about how she fits in or if she doesn't go back or or whatever. I just feel like, you know, you owe it to yourself to try and get better, right? 
Mm. Mm. I agree. Like, she doesn't have to like, go back to being a Valkyrie. She could just mm. deal with her hurt in a way that doesn't require her having to basically not think or just be drunk all the time. Yeah. That's a lot. She's going through a lot. And fair enough, like, it's a horrible thing that happened to her, you know? It's like, she's a war vet, and it's a terrible thing. And she's the only one left. She's the sole survivor. Mm. She is the last Valkyrie. And apparently in the comics, her name is meant to be Brunhilde, which I did not know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I can never tell how I feel about, um, is it Tessa Thompson? Yeah. I look at her and I'm like, but you were the mean girlfriend from Veronica Mars. And that has just stayed (laughs) with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was Wallace's girlfriend, and she was not nice. She had a real attitude problem. I'm holding a grudge because you were not nice to a very traumatized person who was doing her best. It's hard when characters are like that, and you just could never move on because you always remember. It's why um, Joffrey from Game of Thrones will never get another job. (laughs) Poor Joffrey. He seems like such a nice boy. I think he knows that he's done. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about Loki putting on a play and memorialising himself as Odin. So he yes. puts up a statue, a glorious statue, and then he makes them act out a play of his death mm-hmm. and just revels in it. He is such a terror. He's just the worst. He's like just so... He's He's like a Caligula almost. No, he's not quite that bad. He's just really like... He's very self-absorbed. He's very self-aggrandizing. But, like, also I think he was able to do it because there wasn't a lot going on. Like, he just was like, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. He just wasn't looking outward. Yeah, I just think he is desperate to be loved. Like, he is Mm. desperate to be liked. And that's something that he actually has in common with Hela, I thought. Because she turns up and she's like, thought you'd be happy to see me. Why does no one know who I am? You know, Odin was very happy to use me for his own means. And as soon as I became superfluous, he locked me up. Like, Odin is in the bad dad club, for sure. Yeah. And then when Loki turns up at the end, he's also like, your savior has arrived. And he's like, <laughs> oh, did you miss me? Like, he, they're so desperate for validation. So everything he does is kind of out of this desperate need to be adored. Adored or feared, yeah. And mm. I- and actually, I had written something about Hela and Loki being, like, I said that she's, like, serious business, but he's, like, hella light. Yeah. Their colors are even the same. Yeah. Like, the way they present, like, he's, like, the little baby version of her. Like, I he's saw like, this thing on Tumblr that was, like, I, you know, a little drawing and someone's talking to Thor being, like, are you sure you're not the one who's adopted? Because these two. <laughs> They're, like, the emo twins, and he's just, like, I, he's the gold retriever, which is the best. <laughs> Um, I, I really think that's important that she was a secret. And I want to talk about this in the context of mm-hmm. another podcast I listened to, which was The Confessional. And one of the recent episodes was about how family secrets can... Um, I, I think the way that Nadia Bowles-Weber put it was she said that they accrue interest. Mm-hmm. And if you all walk around like there's no secret, but everybody knows that something isn't right, then eventually somebody is going to have to make a balloon payment on that family secret. So somebody will pay for it later because of the secret. And that, to me, really resonated with what's happening here is we have this secret older sister who was literally imprisoned for being too bloodthirsty after Odin had a change of heart, or I guess he grew one. I don't know. And then he had kids who, you know, he was kind of able to say, like, this is the noble and honorable path we should be going on. But he didn't ever acknowledge that he had, like, gotten all of the things he had gotten through this campaign of blood, terror, evil, and uh, colonialization. Mm. And she calls that out. Hela calls that out by saying, 
Odin, proud to have it, ashamed of how he got it. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important that she keeps saying, has no one taught us our history? And like 100%, Odin has not said anything. If he had just like literally talked to anybody at any point, all of yeah. this could have been avoided. Just have a conversation. Just drop it in. Oh, by the way, you have a psychotic older sister that I've locked away who's going to try and come back and take over power when I die. So like, you know, just like prepare for that. Yeah. I suppose we should be glad that he said anything, even though he had to wait until he was dying. He's like, oh yeah, you have a murderous sister's goodbye, I'm dead now. Which I suppose is something that he learnt from not telling Loki about his origin. And that's the thing, because this is a mistake he has made before. So Loki says to Thor in this, you know, it's not nice, is it, to find out that everything has been a lie? Because of course he's been through that already. And then mm. Valkyrie, when she's saying to Thor that the reason she doesn't want to go back is because, you know, the throne is kind of built on lies and all these, you know, lies and secrets and lies and whatever. And then Thor and Hela have this confrontation at the end and she says, father's solution to every problem was to cover it up. And Thor says, or cast it out because that's of mm -hmm. course what he did to Thor and it's just like wow there's no lessons were learned by Odin and no. like where was Frigga in all this as well like you're just never gonna mention you had a daughter such a yeah dysfunctional family yeah and also <laughs> like again the writing not having women I do not know of any families that have a woman in them where the woman isn't like a major part of it <laughs> do you know what I mean mm. The only mention of Frigga in this is when Odin says to Loki, because when they go to find him at the start and Thor's mm -hmm. like, lift your magic. And Odin's like, oh no, it took me ages to shake it off. You know, Frigga would have been proud because Frigga taught Loki how to use his magic. That's it. That's the only mention we really get of, a, of Frigga. Like, I yeah. know sh she's dead at this point, but still. I mean, it hasn't been that long. They should still be talking about her and like thinking about her. I also think it's just, speaking of dead people, how Thor just bounces back from the fact that Loki's not actually dead. Like, he rocks up there, he sees this play, he's immediately like, oh, this is Loki's mm -hmm. doing. Yeah. And then when they go to find Odin, he says, you know, I can't believe you're alive. I mourned for you. I cried for you. And he's like, I'm honoured. And it's just, he genuinely did think he was dead. And he's just glossing over that now, four years later. He's like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go back to our previous dynamic. I wondered, because the, the bit of exposition in the beginning, when he's like about to mule near him, um, where he says, like, I found this trail of death and destruction. And what do I find mm. in Asgard but you just sitting around eating grapes? So I wonder if he's been kind of like letting that hope grow that Loki's actually alive. Mm. And then when he gets there and he finds out that, yes, it's true, he's just kind of mad about it rather than being like, thank goodness. Because, yes, he's yeah. it's been confirmed. But also, like, you could have said something. <laughs> like, and I think that was such a good part of the family dynamic, too. I actually wrote that Thor's really hurt by it. And mm. Loki's really surprised by it. Because Loki has this idea that Thor isn't a changeable person. That he's always going to be the, like, golden retriever puppy of a brother. And he hasn't, like, developed or grown or become more intelligent or more... Like, he hasn't mm. ca caught on to things. But actually, you know... Like, Thor does learn and grow and change and try. And he's applying this. And he's actually way more open about his emotions and feelings. So I love that he was just like, no, I, I did mourn for you. I cried for you. And then he, and then later he says, you know, Loki, I thought it was going to be you and me fighting side by side forever. But you're you I'm and not. I'm me. I love that moment in the lift where he's just like, you know, I thought the world of you. And Loki's genuinely moved by it because he can't believe that Thor actually cares about him. And it breaks my heart that he is so surprised by that affection. 
but he doesn't feel worthy of it, which is why it surprises him. But I love that he always, like, he, you know, he's always tormenting, he's always po- he's always poking, he's always poking mm-hmm. Thor, but he doesn't stop trying. Like, he still goes to visit him in jail, even though he's like, well, you know, I know you're mad at me because I didn't speak up for you in front of mm-hmm. the Grandmaster, but I'm here to check on you. And I love that scene as well, where he's like, this is my brother. And he's like, I don't know this man. <laughs> Adopted. <laughs> Two seconds is all it took. <laughs> I was just thinking about, you know, we talked about Valkyrie and how she is trapped. You know, she has this traumatic memory that she keeps reliving. And I wonder if Hela is not also trapped in her memories as well. Like, she's trying Mm. to revive her past glory. She hates that she's been erased from Asgard's memory. And it's, I think, super gross that Odin did that. Just used her power and then locked her up when it no longer suited him Mm. and so she's sort of motivated by the need to be seen like yes she also wants to take over the world but she also just wants to be seen yeah seen acknowledged as the rightful heir it's very similar trajectory to what thor wanted in the first movie right like Mm. i'm ready to take over but he wasn't really and you're not ready to take over if you're ready to take over you know what i mean yeah it kind of spoke to me that the way that she was erased made me think of the difference between like germany and the u.s I've been thinking about this a bit like in Germany they're very aware of what happened in the Holocaust and they have a lot of like memorials and they talk about it and it's part of the curriculum and it's like Mm -hmm. part of their national dialogue about what happens and how to prevent from happening again whereas in the US when I was raised in the US like that era was like the colorblind era where we were like no everybody's equal and like yes in theory but in practice a lot of racial injustice and systemic racism still happens and we need to address it and deal with it instead of pretending that it doesn't so that the thing that they should have done in Asgard is sort of like taking the approach that Germany took which is like these are the crimes we committed and we're not doing them again what they actually did was like they just basically frescoed over it and pretended Mm -hmm. it never happened and that everybody was always equal and happy which is not the case yeah because she has that line where she says has no one taught you your history you know it's Mm. the thing that she says and it made me wonder about obviously Taika is an indigenous director and so I thought you know is that something that he's brought with him as well from that kind of indigenous perspective that you need to acknowledge the past yeah I actually felt really strongly when I was watching this more than once I thought this is definitely like a commentary about colonization and like indigenous populations and what it means to pretend that everything is fine when there's still Mm -hmm. things are still not fine and also the idea that after a certain amount of time like things have changed so much that you can't go back to how it was originally that's definitely a theme too interesting I love that she was so upset that everything in the vault was fake though i want everything in museums to be fake yes make it fake give the real things back to people who want them i don't need to see a real this or that i just want to learn about it but i don't have to see the real thing yeah i also think it's absolutely stupid that thor brings back the crown you know not the big eyebrow the crown and puts (laughs) it in the vault with the flame that will bring it back to life Mm. i'm like why have you i just don't understand why you brought this thing back to the very seat it needs to be at in order to be activated in the end great thing they needed it to happen but you know like at that point when he does it it's like loading the gun yeah when you don't want to shoot what are you doing can we talk about the fact that they literally walk away and leave the sword in the like thingy Mm. hella does that and then she's like where's the sword i'm like why didn't you take it with you you could have just taken it with you who leaves the keys in the car honestly but how badass is heimdall though i love heimdall (laughs) yeah can we get like the shout out for the actual useful dad of asgard because like he's the one who like helps and guides people and like he gives thor actual directions not i cannot help you now i'm going to fade away into the distance and do a jedi death 
like whatever instead he's like okay you're in a world full full of doorways pick the biggest one and go through it and Thor's like right cool plan all right let's do this revengers unite Mm. or whatever but like he actually gives clear directions and help and advice and like saves people yeah, and Heimdall doesn't just stand around waiting for things to happen. He's evacuating people beforehand. Like, okay, mm. yes, he can see everything. You know, he's got magic sight. But still, proactive, and I like yes, it. Yes, I like it too. And look, magic sight doesn't mean you're constantly looking at everything all of the time, right? Yeah, and I did love that when Thor is in Surtur's lair, he just expects Heimdall to pick him up because that's how it's always worked. <laughs> and it's just like, Heimdall? I need a ride. Um, Can we talk about Carl Urban for a second? Because I am a big fan. Oh, Carl Urban might be if if. <laughs> I love him. I love him. I think the first movie night that I ever did was a Carl Urban appreciation night. Um, And we watched Red. Oh, I'm here for it. I love Red. He's so good in that. Mm. He's great in that. That is a, that's a criminally underrated film. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, but Carl Urban is brilliant in this. And I love a good redemption arc. And this one, like, ticked all the boxes. He was actually a great example of one of those people, you know, when Hela turns up. And and it never fails to shock me that she kind of just kills Thor's Avenger buddies. Like, it's nothing. Like, not Avenger. The Three Musketeers, as I like to call them. She just, like, kills them. And we never talk about it again. And it just happens in a second. And that's it. Yeah. Beardy, blonde Zachary Levi, and the other guy. Gone. Yeah. And then he's just standing there being like, look, I'm just the janitor. And he sort of carries along. And then there's instant regret. You see it almost immediately that he's he regrets what he's done. And I think that mm-hmm. is so fascinating because normally you see a lackey and they sort of have a change at heart towards the end. But I think from the start, you see that kind of reluctance. He's just like, well, I want to stay alive. How, how much is it going to cost me to stay alive? Yeah. And at the end, it's when he decides that it's going to cost too much to stay alive. If it means anyone else having to die, he just goes like, this is the line. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, he's a great character. And I also love when he just, you know, runs after Thor at the start. And Loki's <laughs> like, you had one job. I mean, I love that too, because this is actually a very funny movie. And like, it's not, it, you're right. It doesn't take itself seriously. And that is the joy of it. Movies should be fun. Movies should be enjoyable. Yeah, and this is just laugh after laugh and just in unexpected places, like all the time. You've got, you know, Rachel House being hilarious. One of my favourite lines is at the end, you know, well, firstly, Korg. I love Korg. Everything that comes out of Korg's mouth is funny. You know, he started a revolution, mm-hmm. but he didn't print enough pamphlets. Like, pamphlets. what is that about? And then at the end, when he's starting another revolution and she says, oh, the slaves are revolting or whatever. And he's like, I don't like that word. And she's like, the prisoners with jobs and it's such a great line it's so good oh it oh. is and it 100 percent speaks to like the fact that the grandmaster just doesn't like the unpleasantness but she actually is like much more realistic and lets him lead in that flamboyant way so she can get the actual violence and like day-to-day living done mm. she runs it but it's his planet yeah it was when she brings him the melting stick when he's talking to valkyrie and loki and he's like why are you bringing me i just what it's not a capital offense <laughs> i love that it's called the melt stick but that's again it's kind of like the farcical nature of superheroes like they come up with these elaborate backstories for things and it's like nah it's just the melt stick that's what it does it melts people i love that oh so funny look i would watch rachel house at almost anything Honorable mention to Hunt for the Wilder People, in which she says no child left behind like 57 times in complete seriousness. She's amazing. Hunt for the Wilder People is another incredible film, and I cannot recommend it enough if you haven't seen it, because it's so good. It actually shares a lot of cast. So like the main scavenger guy was also in Hunt for the Wilder People. He was one of the rangers, wasn't he? 
mm-hmm. who thought Sam Listen, Neill was a pervert. And of course, Sam Neill is also in Thor Ragnarok. He plays Odin in the play within a play. And also Luke Hemsworth playing Thor. <laughs> I mean, genius. Yeah, you'll notice this a lot in Kiwi films is that the same people just turn up in all of them. <laughs> yeah, the, all the same 20 people are in all the movies. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you if you think the Sakaar tunnel ride... When, you know, they induct the slaves into the world of Sakaar. Is that supposed to be a brainwashing thing? Because there's a lot of flashing lights. There's a lot of no one will love you as much as the Grandmaster will love you. I don't know if it's meant to be a brainwashing thing or if it's just meant to wrong foot you. It felt a little like, like, to me, it's the direct callback to the unreality of the place. Um, Mm. And, like, it is a place that exists outside of time. Yeah, I just love it. And because it's like the Willy Wonka theme. It's the same as the Willy Wonka theme. You immediately get what they're trying to do with it, which I love. Can I talk about the scoring a little bit? Mm -hmm. It's Mark Mothersbaugh, who's the lead singer of Devo. And he also scored a bunch of Wes Anderson films, which sound different, obviously. But this is so good and so funky. And it just feels like pure 80s, but not even like Mm -hmm. real 80s. It just feels like the way the 80s feels to us now. It's great. The aesthetic of it is incredible Mm. as well. Like it really just has an incredible aesthetic. The score is great. It's just, yeah, it's got this real 80s vibe. You're right. This retro kind of 80s, what you think is cool about the 80s, but none of the real naffness of the 80s, which is bizarre because it's an alien planet. So why is it 80s? But sure, let's go with it. (laughs) But it works. And like the reason it works is because it's meant to be interesting to look at. It's not meant to be cool. Mm. it's aware of its own dagginess and like embraces that and I'm here for that maybe self-awareness is everything about the power of this film it's the self-awareness of how ridiculous superhero films is it's the self-awareness mm. of you know things taking itself too seriously and it's just great and I mean the main moral of the film is just like you guys need to talk that is the entire thing you get from it is like the family would not be so dysfunctional if they'd actually communicated maybe valkyrie would not be so traumatized if she had actually communicated <laughs> like mm. um i love that they all think they're the savior of asgard but like they have to all destroy it like literally nobody can save it that's a nice subversion of the idea that you have to stop an apocalypse from happening but actually in this case you need to cause the apocalypse in order to save mm. the day yeah nice cleansing fire that does lend an interesting question though will anybody remember the history they're losing the full scope of their history by just destroying all of Asgard. Mm. I have a question for you about the power. I really noticed it the second time I watched it where they kept talking about how when Halo was back in Asgard, she would reach her full power and then she would be unstoppable. I think Valkyrie said that Thor draws his power from Asgard as well. Yeah. So my question is, is it the place like that, like stuck in outer space place or is it the people could like Hela theoretically escape and go hang out in Norway for a while with a bunch of Asgardians and then like get her power back or is it like once you have it it's there and you just get more when you're out like how does it how do you think it works I don't know I think it's very interesting because like such a, a common thing in this is constantly you get told you know Asgard is not a place it's its people like that is mm. a tenant of the story right so if the people are the source of Asgard then theoretically being around them would give you power but I wonder if there's not something with Hela's power in particular whether it's not something in the soil yeah like radioactive or something <laughs> yeah although I don't think she gets any stronger she just seems to be strong all the time so I don't know yeah. if she needed more time on Asgard but there wasn't really a physical manifestation of her being stronger I don't think we were told but we weren't shown like it, she was just invincible from the beginning but I think you actually mentioned this in your notes didn't you that like they're really inconsistent with how powerful these characters oh, are mate I hate this. This It's one of my biggest bugbears with the Marvel MCU. And I'm sure DC do this as well, but I don't care enough to pay attention. But Marvel (laughs) is so inconsistent with how 
powerful its heroes are. So Thor unlocks incredible power in this film. I love this because Odin is so sassy and he says to him, what are you, Thor, god of hammers? No, he's god of thunder and god of lightning. So he realizes that he can just summon lightning. He doesn't need the hammer. And so he becomes like really awesomely powerful. And you've got that great scene at the end where he dives off the balcony and he's just like wrecking things. And it's so cool, right? And of course you've got immigrant song because he doesn't love a cliche. Mm. And that's great. And then the Hulk is really powerful in this. Like he was ready to take Surtur on himself and he would have probably have won, right? And Loki, not so much in this, but in the TV show, we see a lot more of his power as well because he is actually quite powerful. And he will like stop an entire building from falling over and reverse it like it's nothing. Then you have these exact same characters in Infinity War and they're so underutilized Mm. and Thanos just wrecks them. And I am sorry, but like there's no consistency and it drives me insane. It was one of my biggest issues with Thor in Infinity War and the Endgame after that where... I was just like, but he is so much stronger than this. He's a literal mm. god and you've put him amongst humans and like, okay, Thanos is an alien, whatever. Just be consistent. Yeah. Be consistent. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Or, or anyway. give him an in-world out. Like, say that because he's not an Asgard or because like, you need to have something like, oh, his powers have diminished since his father died. Like, just find a way he to link it He needs a kryptonite, back. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if, yeah, this is the thing. You can't have him be absolutely powerful. You have to, there has to be an Achilles heel so to speak. And then, you know what? You make Captain America incredibly powerful. The man has just had some serum. Like, I'm sorry. it does. It's not the same. It's not the same. He's had a week in the gym and some, like, waxing done. That's it. Yeah, I'm not really interested if the comics explain it or all these things because you've built a cinematic universe out of this, so it needed it needs to be contextualized within the cinematic universe. Well, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. I'm with you, and I think part of the reason that I quit watching them was because I was just over trying to keep track of who thought what about what characters. I really like things in canon to make sense. Mm. I'm happy to read fic outside of canon and like accept that, but that goes in a different mental pile. When it, I feel like I'm reading all the fan fiction and they're all disagreeing, but it's the only text. That's when I get a bit crossed. Yeah. And a lot of the, the character decisions in Marvel sometimes contradict each other and don't really make sense. Like, I get that Civil War, like Captain America with Civil War is a big deal and whatever. But Tony Stark's reaction in that is actually disproportionate, I think. Like, it does not, you can't have this massive schism in this team based on what happens. It doesn't make sense. I didn't see that movie because... The way the direction they went was in response to the all of the memes about like, oh, they all live in Stark Tower together. I don't care enough about Marvel to actually be upset about the outcome of any of the film. Yeah. It just didn't really make sense to me within the narrative. And that's when I get annoyed. Like, I think it needs to make sense within the story, within the world that you've built. I need to be able to follow it. And with that, I was just like, what is happening? But with Infinity War, I was like, I don't, what is happening Mm. here? Why is anyone making the decisions that they're making? I think I stopped watching before I even got to Wanda and the brother. Which isn't another thing that infuriates me, because of course, X-Men just put out a new film where Quicksilver was in the X-Men film. And then we had Age of Ultron, which had Quicksilver and Wanda in it. I'm like, but now Mm. there are two Quicksilvers existing in the world (laughs) at the same time, (laughs) in different franchises, with different actors. Completely different characters. It's a no from me. <laughs> I think I would. I read a tweet. I think it was Rainbow Rowell actually, who said that she had to give up on the MCU because it was just too much to try and keep track of. Like it was just expanding too quickly. And I, I had felt that for a while, but I was so glad that I saw somebody else articulate it because I didn't want to be the person who was like, "It's just too much," but it is too much. 
I don't want to spend all of my time trying to make links and figure things out. Like, that's just a lot of energy I don't have, man. The thing is, when you have a universe that is this big, and so you've got all these things. So, of course, Doctor Strange makes an appearance in this. So I actually only watched the Doctor Strange film after I saw this film, because I was like, oh, he seems quite fun. I was never interested in the Doctor Strange Mm. film. The character just sounds dull. But the film actually was really... I really enjoyed it. But then I get these gremlins on my head. So like in this film, there's like this close up of his door and it's 170, oh no, on this card that he leaves for Thor to come and collect Loki and it's like 177A Bleecker Street. And in my head, I'm like, is this a reference because Benedict Cumberbatch is Sherlock and therefore it's 221B Baker Street. Mm. So then I spend half an hour of my life Googling (laughs) it to try and figure out if it is. And like, no, it's canonically Doctor Strange's address. That's just weird though. I I don't have time for this. I don't want to be spending my time (laughs) doing this yeah okay so i hear you and i had to (laughs) honestly restrain myself from googling norse mythology because i wanted to know how badly it diverged i mean i know it's just made up like i know it's not true to the actual mythology Mm. but i still want to know like i want to know contextually what they're meant to represent and how they diverge yeah the thing with that is really interesting i find is because we're dealing with norse mythology which is you know it's got a mythological source material but of Mm. course that is not the source material of the film the film source material should be the comic universe the marvel universe so then you've got like how does it relate to that material and how does that material relate to the norse mythology and then i'm just i give up i give up too many nesting dolls but the good thing about this film is like we don't have to care because it's so fun and it doesn't matter if you don't care about the rest of mcu or any of the other characters and you don't need to know you don't need to know and like it has its own unique interesting characters that add enough like the grandmaster is interesting enough and like he's not a bad guy but he is the bad guy in this because that's the one they're trying to escape since that tom hiddleston article you sent me by the way i can't see him as anything other than a gigantic dork oh my gosh okay so we will link this article (laughs) in the show notes because it's an interview he did with gq i think in 2017 Mm. sometimes i will just read this article like i think maybe i read it twice a year i would just be like oh i'm gonna go read that tom hiddleston (laughs) interview again you see he's just adorable he's a dork he seems like a genuinely interested and interesting person like he really wants to connect and he really thinks that everybody is just lovely and nice and wonderful and the thing i loved about that article as well is how he talks about that people deserve actors who put in the work Mm. that you don't just turn up that you actually you know it is work and you have to do it and it reminded me of this quote I saw from Owen Wilson where he said that Tom Hiddleston would give him basically Loki lectures about Loki's Mm. character and the motivations and all these things and I can just see it because he is such a dog and I'm here for it that's like Gen V catnip though right it's people doing the work and doing it well but here's the thing also about Tom Hiddleston he is an incredible actor so part of me is actually really like I think the reason that Loki is a compelling character and the reason that people like him enough that he got his own TV show because why would he he was just a secondhand character in a Thor film like he shouldn't be as big as he is but Tom Hiddleston is an incredible actor and he really infused a lot of pathos into this character right and then I saw him in London doing a play he did Coriolanus which is a Shakespeare play and it was just phenomenal and sometimes I just like you know not a week goes by that I don't think about this play and it's just he is I think a great actor and part of me is really annoyed that he is in the MCU because I feel like I'm being deprived of real acting because now he's just playing Loki yeah yeah right you want to see all of the things I want to see his range yeah you know good on him he's probably getting making a lot of money doing this but Hmm. there's part of me that just sees Marvel taking all his time and sucking up his entire career and I don't want that I want to see what else he can do because I think he's incredible so anyway it has been zero days since my last Tom Hiddleston related breakdown (laughs) 
Um, I was thinking about letting this go, but I actually want to bring it up as like one of my final points. And I think it actually kind of works really nicely. We talked about how Odin is like the worst dad. And I know that part of Thor's like getting through and understanding himself and his role and what his expectations for himself are is like in the experiences he has where he has these conversations with Odin. And I firstly want to say they're not real. This is a mm. King's Cross Dumbledore moment. It's in his head. Yeah, it's 100% in his head because Odin is not forthcoming and also not that good at being a dad. So this is actually Thor's kind of way of reparenting himself. He's reframing the conversations he needs to have with his father by having them in these mm. moments of supreme weakness and vulnerability in order to gain the strength to move forward. So for, for you, Thor, you're doing the work and I appreciate that. Mm. The other thing I wanted to just, the last thing I want to talk mm. about, actually there's two things. So with memory, I think Bruce Banner and the Hulk, their parallel of memory sharing yeah. is very interesting because it's the memory of Natasha that triggers Bruce's transformation. Like, so it's when the Hulk sees that video that he becomes Bruce again. And then Bruce says that he has no memory of what happened while he was the Hulk. And previously it felt like he, you know, each of them always had a hand on the wheel, but now he was just stuck in the trunk. And how terrifying that must be. You know, yeah. he's woken up after two years. On an alien planet. He he doesn't know where he is. Then Thor lies to him. He's like, you know, you and I had a fight and I won easily. And he's like, that doesn't sound right. But, you know, Thor, this man has been through a traumatic thing. Now is not the time for you to be misleading him with fake information. <laughs> he would have won if he hadn't been shot collared to death, though. I do think uh, that's yeah, true. true. They've got some great banter, though. Like mm. when Thor's like, you fly the spaceship, use one of your PhDs. It's like, none of them are for flying. So good. Yes. <laughs> I love that. So and the much. other memories thing I want to talk about was just Thor and Loki's childhood memories and how that is actually a bond for them, mm. like the shared memory. Even though one of them is terrible when Thor's talking about how Loki transformed himself into a snake and then transformed himself back and was like, ah, it's me, and stabbed him. <laughs> and Loki's sitting there chuckling about it because it is actually pretty funny. <laughs> and then being like the whole, I'm not doing get help. Like, what a great scene. I love that too. Belonging is the thing that Loki's always chasing. And he's never mm -hmm. sure if he does belong. And he won't accept that the shared experience is actually part of that measuring how you belong. Yeah. And like, he has this, like, they have this very solid foundation of a childhood. And, you know, that's before Loki knew that he was adopted. And before all that stuff happened, all of that is real. Mm. And he just doesn't trust it. But Thor is like, I trust you to betray me. Round and round we go. Mm -hmm. You know, even that is kind of a foundational memory that they have that he's always going to behave in this way. I love that Thor mm. clocks it and just accounts for it now. That's that's good. I also really loved that moment where Loki sees the Hulk and he has this very traumatic memory of when the Hulk destroyed him yeah. in a fight. And then when he sees Bruce again, you know, Bruce is like, last time I saw you, you were trying to kill everybody and where are you at these days? And Loki's like, it varies from moment to moment. And I'm just <laughs> really here for that. I'm like, yeah, me too. That's me at work. Hey, Jen, how are you doing today? Mm. The jur jury's still out. I've definitely had days like that. All right. Um, did you want to spotlight anybody? Yes. So I am going to spotlight my boy Loki. Yay. He has done terrible thing. He has led many people to their deaths in previous Marvel films. But I think what really struck me in this viewing, I guess, is that Thor calls him out for being predictable and for being unwilling to grow. And he actually rises to that. Mm. While it's hard to take anything he does as sincere, he goes and stands up to Thanos directly after this timeline. So it does seem like he's turned over a new leaf mm. and he, you know, he's there at the end and Thor says to him, if 
I might even hug you if you were there. And he is there. Like, he has decided to be present and to be part of this story, for better or worse. And it immediately leads to his death after this. But, you know, I love a good redemption arc. And I Mm. think this is a redemption arc for Loki. So, yeah, I want to give him some spotlight because growth is hard. And I'm glad that he's finally allowing himself to change. Oh, I love that. Um, Did you have a spotlight? Um, yes. We didn't get to talk very much about him, but I actually wanted to spotlight uh, Heimdall because this Mm. is the guy who sees everything and abandons his post in order to ensure the good of the people. And I think looking back, you know, he was following orders and not letting Thor back in. And like, that was a problem in the older movies, I think. Mm -hmm. But when you look at like, is this a threat to this community? Here's somebody who's really community-minded and really focuses on saving, like, the people. Not the royal family, the people, like, the actual citizens. And mm. I think there's something to be said for that. Like, he's risking life, limb, and other people's safety, trying to get as many citizens as he can to mm. safety, and then evacuate them, which is a huge undertaking. And he's doing this all, like, very covertly. And he's also helping Thor out over time and space. And I just think there are some people who are stretched very thin, and trying to mm. cover all their bases and it's hard man it is hard but you, like if you're having to do a lot i have faith that you can do it if i'm not could do it you could do it i've actually never thought about this but if they had made it to the bifrost and he had opened it for the the evacuees was he gonna go with them and therefore leave the sword behind or was he gonna stay and take the sword yeah. so was he gonna sacrifice himself for the good of asgard and you know he immediately tries to defend the people as well when the whatever the wolf's name is fenris? that i forgot it fenris that's it starts to like advance mm. you know he gets ready to fight like wow what a what a man yeah yeah he, he he does he just he really takes on the role of like a leader without being the elected leader why shouldn't he should Mm. be the king yeah make heimdall the king Uh, yeah heimdall for king yeah idris alba for king (laughs) i mean he's very handsome and he would look great on all of the posters great spotlight i love that yeah i was just because i was trying to think like who did i really appreciate when i was watching the films and yeah, it was the guy who was kind of just trying to help everyone. Well, if that's, I feel like I should have spotlit Korg now, <laughs> the true hero of Ragnarok. <laughs> another day, another Doug. Bye, new Doug. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh, he's just so nonplussed by everything. Like when Thor like goes running around in a circle, he just keeps talking, and and Thor's like, "Oh, you don't fight the champion." And, He's like, you're made of rocks. Perishable rock. Look, there goes another one. (laughs) I don't know if Korg was even scripted. Did Taika just make up all of Korg's lines? Because it feels very improv-y. Yeah. I think, like, Korg is part of the reason that it feels like a Taika Waititi film more than anything else. Like, you get these great one-liners and this, like, pure Kiwi energy coming from this rock man. And I love it. It just reminds me of what we do in the shadows and his like, like his little dandy character in that. Oh my gosh. I just the dishes. Like they have all the cups <laughs> the stacked up by the sink. <laughs> and when he's like, Peter, there's a lot of skulls in this. That is fine. I'll bring a broom down and you can just oh hissing at him. Oh gosh. Such a good film. I watch it every Halloween. It's my Halloween film. That's a great Halloween film. We watch Hocus Pocus because I have small children. Yeah. And I don't think they're ready for that. Werewolves, not swearwolves. Still, I say that sometimes. It's so good. I love how much they love Stu. Everybody loves Stu. And he was the real IT guy. <laughs> oh, 
whole thing is ridiculous. The Kiwis are ridiculous and I love them and I want to go home. <laughs> I know you do. Soon we will get home. Oh, we can hope. Yeah, we can't keep <clears throat> you forever. Who will bake for the PM? I feel like there's been a lot of fangirling in this episode, mainly by me for Tom Hiddleston. So I think it's quite appropriate that next week we'll be starting our reading of Fangirl Woo! by Rainbow Rowell. I'm excited for this. Me too. Hang on, I've got to show you my rainbows. Oh, they're beautiful. Rainbows. Luckily do have it on Kindle, so I can start reading it even though my actual physical copy is at home. So, yeah. We don't have to have the physical. Look, we don't want anyone to feel limited. We just try and keep our copies the same so we can find things when we're talking. But it's yeah. it's just for us. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm excited too. I'm really ready. <laughs> it's been an intense couple of books that we've read. Yeah, that we've had a lot, lots to work through. Yeah. So I think this is going to be good. Mm, it's a little lighter. I'm looking forward to delving into lots of stories about my own fangirl history, which is rich and varied. So it's going to be great. I'm going to have to t- bring this back to family because, like, that's that's the part that really calls to me is the difficulties in the family that she has like how she relates to her dad Mm. and how she relates to her sister and And her mom yeah I really can't wait to get into that because I love that everybody is difficult and nobody is like redeemable really Mm. well thank you so much for this it's so fun I love talking about this film I am so so glad we picked this one this one is great I had so much fun watching it and I really enjoyed just getting to sit and take notes as I watched it and I should show you my original notes because they're a mess but they were really funny (laughs) (laughs) so much oh my god Loki stop chill (laughs) fair enough and thank you for letting me start a little bit late oh that's absolutely fine it's not like I'm doing anything so whatever (laughs) I know you're just chilling out with your parents you will get home soon and then you will be alone in your beautiful little cottage and you will feel much better Yes, I'll be introverting away soon enough. Yay. I can't wait for you to have that opportunity. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Me too. All right. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to start Fangirl next week. I guess we're going to read, what, chapters one through four. Oh, short section. It's going to be little ones, but that's good. It'll be nice to not have, like, 20 chapters a week to read. So Yeah, and get real in-depth. Mm. So it'll be great. I can't wait. Great. Neither. Right. Well, thank you. I'll see you next All week. Right. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining Gen D and Gen V for this one shot. Martinelli Pod is written, edited, and produced by Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoy listening, please rate and review the show on your podcasting platform or trick. Feel free to write an email to say hi. The email address is hello at martinellipod.com. The intro and outro music is by Scott Buckley. The full show notes and additional content can be found at www.marginalapod.com.